0: Christmas 1984, some of you weren't born probably, but in Christmas 1984, I got a technical Lego car for Christmas from my mum and dad. And uh, it was probably, in my mind, the most magnificent present of my whole childhood. Um, It had seats that tilted back. It had those little kind of pistons that popped up and down as you moved the car along. Now, for many of you here, that's just totally uninspiring whatsoever. But you know, it, it, for me, it, you know, steering wheel, pistons, suspension with little you know elastic bands which kind of held it together. This was the best thing I'd ever um, seen and been given, and it was mine, all mine. And uh, on Christmas Day, I, I made it till about midnight, I kind of finished all thousand pages of the instructions, and then the next day I took it down, a few hours. Then I built it again, and I did this for days and days and days. It was absolutely fantastic. It was my car, and it was all mine. And if you've ever been given something really good, the the last thing you want to do is to give it away. Now, the shock came when my mum took my technical Lego car, without me knowing, to the local charity shop. I absolutely flipped. I, I have to say, my reaction was a bit overstated for a 30 year old but you know it, it was kind of pretty large that was my technical Lego car how dare you throw that away and give it to other people but if you've got something really good you want to hold on to it don't you? Uh, it's like a job. If, you, you know, if you're in a job and you've got a good wage coming in, you're able to pay the bills, you enjoy life in London, and if you're a Christian, to give a little bit sacrificially and so on. You know, if you've got a good job like that, you want to hold on to that, don't you? you know, relationships, same. If, if you love your family or your, your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, you don't ignore them, you invest in them. You don't buy them a sack of, sack of potatoes for, for Christmas, do you? Or their birthday, unless they're... Particularly loving potatoes or something like that, you know, you buy them something they're going to cherish and appreciate. You see, if you've got something really good, whether it's a relationship, job, or whatever, you want to hold on to it. I mean, being passive in a situation is not to hold on. You know, if, if an employee uh, kind of maintains the same level of a, you know, kind of work rate throughout a year they're going to get fired. A boss expects you to get more and more efficient at your work. That They want to see improvements. They want to see positive steps in your output, don't they? You see, holding on is active. It is competent in the word that we see here. Dynamic, it's an alive thing to do. You see when the Allied forces in 1944 held on to those landing beaches in you know, northern France, in Normandy, Omaha, Juno, Gold, and Sword, and all those kind of ones, you know, near Aramage, How does an army, the Navy, the Marines, how do they hold on to a beach? Do they get halfway up and find a nice, comfortable sand dune, light up a cigarette, and say, "Yeah, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah, we've done pretty well." Of course not. You know, there are there are. Hundreds of square miles of, of land with little white crosses on, just south of each of those beaches, bearing testimony to the fact that holding on is not passive. Rather, it is very active. It is sacrificial and it is painful at times. You see, if you've got something good, and the Allied forces felt they had something good in taking those beaches, you hold on to it, don't you? And in Philadelphia, this church that we just heard about, they had something fantastic. And Jesus simply says to them, hold on. Let's just give me a, give me a few moments to give you a bit of background to this, this letter in, to Philadelphia. As we know, it's the sixth of seven letters to the churches in first century Asia Minor. Now we know that as uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's perhaps probably the, most, the com- most complex of all the letters, but at the same time, breathe a sigh of relief, it's the most positive. Um, so, phew, because you know, we've had five weeks of whew, endurance kind of thing. Uh, there are numerous similarities also to the church in Smyrna, the second letter. There's no blame, only praise. Uh, both suffered from so-called Jews, the writer John says, and both are promised a crown at the end. The comparisons with Smyrna at that point, they stop. If you've got an ESV study Bible, though, I would encourage you to look at the introductory notes of these seven churches because it's a very helpful mapping of how letter 1 and 7 have many similarities, 2 and 6, 3 and 5 and so on, and 4 is, if you like, the, the pivotal one. Very, very helpful little table there if you've got that. Particular helpful study Bible. So uh, the differences with Smyrna and Philadelphia stop at that point because Philadelphia was a comparatively modern city, Smyrna ancient, um, Philadelphia quite poor, Smyrna very wealthy, and so on. What made Philadelphia stand out though was that it was a strategic city. Like I suppose, um, imagine like Dover on our south coast, you know, the southeast coast there. Philadelphia was small, it was a poor uh, city had little credibility, but it was utterly strategic. Um, such that Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east. Hellenistic missionaries um, used this city as kind of a haven before heading east to, to spread the news of if you know, like Greek philosophy and Greek ways of living and so on, further east. So the church was in a small, insignificant city and itself, many believe, was very small. The church was, but it was quality, Unlike many of the other churches, its enemies, if you like, its threat came from outside rather than from within. So to this church, Jesus writes, there's no kind of brutal warnings. There's no kind of harsh, you know, be careful, don't do that, wake up call, all that kind of stuff. Rather, it's assurance, it's encouragement. Might you just turn your eyes down to verse 7? And halfway through verse 8. Just the introduction there. To the angel in the church in Philadelphia Right, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I've placed a little introductory point there on your uh, sheet. I have placed before you an open door. I, I think there are times uh, when we, as Christians we need to be reminded and encouraged that we're safe. And that is, we see here the image of the door. and We need to be encouraged that the door to heaven is open for us. It is wide open if we have trusted, as with Jesus, trusted in Jesus. Because he alone provides us the opportunity to be with God for eternity. Because he has taken the judgment that we deserve by suffering on a cross in our place. And the thing by that action on the cross, he not only makes the door open, if you like, we also know that he is the door. We know that from John chapter 10, verses 7 and 9 as well. That is, salvation is only offered in and through Jesus to those who accept him as Lord and Saviour. Now many of us know these assurances and the reason we trust in Jesus is because of who he is, his nature, his character as he's displayed it throughout history and ultimately on the cross. And, and we see as we have in all the letters that he begins with the description of himself taken from Revelation chapter 1 to if you like bolster those assurances. And here we see that in those little statements at the beginning of verse 7. He says he is holy and true that Jesus is the holy and true one. Now these are the same phrases that, that he will, um, the writer John will use to describe God later on in chapter 6. But Jesus is God, and more specifically here, the term holy denotes that Jesus is the pure and the perfect one. As many of us uh, learnt last week at Revive. The word true there, on the other hand, denotes that the faithfulness of God. Now the original word here for true, uh, lenthinos, is, is not often applied to people, actually very rarely is applied to people. Therefore, you see, what he's trying to bring together in these two things is, Jesus, the one whom we put our trust in for salvation, to get to heaven, is pure. That is, when he offers us his perfect life in substitution for ours before God, we can be totally and utterly assured that God will see us as pure, as righteous. That's holy. That is good and right in his sight. Also, if Jesus says, says he has made it possible to be with God for eternity, we ought to believe him because he's the true one. The door is open, he says, and he speaks as one who is divine and who is incapable of deceiving us. Because he's true. He always is. Before us is this open door that no one can shut. Because Jesus has promised and made it possible for the door to always be open. And remain open. Because Jesus is the completely reliable, true, faithful, holy one. The second assurance of the reality of this open door to heaven is because Jesus, he holds the key of David. Do you see that there? Basically, this, this shows us that Jesus is the one who decides who will enter. Uh, through this door to heaven. A phrase comes from Isaiah chapter 22, um, verse 22 mainly, where Eliakim, the king of Israel, was given the key of the house of David. Uh, and the key symbolised, back in Isaiah, the, the administrative authority uh, and responsibility of the king over the kingdom, the people of God. And the imagery is used by John in Revelation to show that what we see in Eliakim is now being fulfilled In Christ, like him, is just a shadow of what Christ will become for God's kingdom and for all the people of the world. He holds the key of David. He decides who enters through that door into the eternal kingdom of God. And look what it says, another great assurance. What he opens, no one can shut. John uses a, a kind of paraphrase of an Old Testament quote here to show that Jesus is He's the one who's in control of all of this. Jesus acts, and none of us, no one, nothing, can interfere. This is such great assurance that Jesus has opened the door to heaven for those of us who have accepted him as Lord and trusted in him as Saviour. If we have done that, nothing can shut this door. This assurance is repeated at the beginning of verse 8 there. Where again, once again, Jesus says, I know your deeds. He knows right into us all of our lives. But he says, I place before you an open door there at the beginning of verse 8. Now when the deeds of a church, God's people, Christians, are mixed with assurances of heaven, we can sometimes get twitchy about that kind of thing, can't we? Uh, we, might, we can rightly be aware that we can do nothing to gain our salvation, to be saved for heaven. But this verse is rather suggesting that the door, this open door to heaven provided by Christ is simply the basis for the good works of the church, not the means to the open door of salvation. The works, you see, provide no merit for going through that door. Rather, they are the motivation of, uh, and a healthy sign of appreciation for the door being opened by Christ. Jesus has placed this door to eternity with God before those of us who, who love him and who have accepted him as Lord in our lives and trusted him as Saviour. The tangible assurance of, of this open door is displayed amongst the Christians of the church In their continued living with Jesus as their Lord. So, if you're a Christian, then of course, we first look, of course, to Jesus, the assurance of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins in our place. That substitutionary swap going on. That's our first assurance as Christians. But our second assurance is to look here in our lives. Because if you are really a a Christian, then there there will be a a recognition that Jesus is Lord in all that you do. Either you'll see that in your struggle against your sinful nature and all the things in the world that try and drag you away from God. Or or you'll see it in your rejoicing in Jesus being your Saviour and your sacrificial living that comes from that as you respond to Him. Uh, The flip side of that is... If you're not struggling against your sin, if you find yourself persistently sinning and have no, kind of no concern about where that's heading, that lifestyle, maybe it's some sort of sexual immorality, maybe it's just a, an issue of uh, you, you know, you, the idolatry in your life, the love of money that you have, and, and that is a persistent rejection of, Lord, of Jesus' lordship, then you've got to ask yourself some serious questions. Well, for the Christians in Philadelphia, yeah, life was hard. They faced persecution, but Jesus has wonderfully assured them at the beginning here. And now, even better, and we breathe a sigh of relief, he begins to praise them uh, in one of these letters. Look, follow me if you can, halfway through verse 8. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and and acknowledge that I have loved you. I want to summarise that that verse and a half, really, with our first main point there. I will humble your enemies, Jesus says. Again, this is great comfort. This is great praise. He says, I will humble those who give you opposition. See, despite the struggles in in the church in Philadelphia and all that they faced around them, they were assured by Jesus that their enemies will one day be humbled before them. Their situation was one of weakness. You see that in that little phrase, you have little strength, he says there. That is, many would suggest that they were very small in number. It would be a speculation to, to work out what that figure is. Uh, but it meant in reality that, that socially there are, there are a small minority in that city. And, and by that, they had low social standing. We know that from the whole region. Yet despite their little strength, Jesus also says that wonderful phrase, you have kept my word. Do you see that? See, it seems that despite all the pressures from outside, that the, the church had not embraced false teaching, as many of the other churches had, both corporately and individually. Uh, the word of God remained, had remained for them their sole direction in life. They were not tempted to listen to the many temptations around them. Uh, That would have made life easier. Of course they would. Uh, And perhaps in in the short term, a little bit more exciting in their minds. No, the Philadelphians had kept my word, kept God's word. And we also see the praises mounting up, and it's lovely, isn't it? Look what Jesus says. In the end, they said, you have not denied my name. I wonder... Let's just flip forward 16 hours or so. When you get to work tomorrow morning, I guess you'll get a coffee or a drink and there'll be that two minutes we're going to chat around before you sit down at your computer and get going and all that kind of stuff. Or maybe during some kind of break in the morning if you get time to breathe. A question like this might come. What did you do at the weekend? And I wonder if you'll go something like this to the default. I I went went shopping, I bought this lovely whatever it may be, I I went to a party on Saturday night, we had a great time. Oh, we had these lovely canopies. They were fantastic. I think they were from Waitrose or, you know, anything. And it will go off on all sorts of variances, won't it? Will you ignore the most important part of your weekend? the gathering of God's people to come under the sound of his word to pray together and to sing his praises. Will you miss that out? Will it just skip your mind? Of course what the Philadelphians had done was way more impressive. When confronted with probably hostile opposition, when faced with probably imprisonment at times, probably beatings as well, They had not denied the name of Jesus. They had said, Jesus is Lord and Saviour. So what did you do at the weekend? Why don't you work out your response, ready for tomorrow? Well, as a result of the Philadelphians' faithfulness, Jesus promises in verse 9, it's a vindication really, isn't it? A vindication before their enemies. You see, there were these Jewish people um, in Philadelphia who persecuted the Christians. And they're described here, it's pretty horrifying, isn't it? As a synagogue of Satan, basically a gathering of of Satan's people, Satan's power or something like that. So literally, Jesus says, he will give those people to the Christians and they will fall down and acknowledge Jesus' love for his church. It, as I said, it's a picture of vindication. It will happen at judgment. Those who have persecuted Christians will see that at judgment that their persecution uh, of, of God's faithful people was utterly futile. And they will also see that their denial of Christ was totally foolish with eternal consequences. For Christ loves his church. He dwells in it and he dwells amongst us. And we may see no justice today for all that stuff that you might get tomorrow if you dare to mention that you were at church tonight. You might get all sorts of stuff in the next few days if you dare to mention that Jesus is your Lord and Saviour. You may see no justice for that in this life. But one day, and this is why it makes it worth it, one day, those enemies of God will acknowledge Christ's love for his people Justice will come. That little theme of justice carries on even in verse 10. If you follow with me, look at that. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So firstly, Jesus says, in assurance, but also praise, so he said, I will I will humble your enemies. And secondly, he says, again, very positively, I will keep you from judgments. In verses 10 and 11. God demonstrates his justice here as those who keep his commands, God will keep. Do you see how that, that, that little, those two little kept and keep phrase comes up there? In verse 10 and 11. If you have kept them, God will keep you. Jesus recognizes in the, recognizes in the Philadelphian church a faithfulness, and you see that here in their ability to keep the command, my command to endure. You have kept my command to endure, Jesus says. Now this phrase here that he's using here is meant to recall all of what he said, summarise those clauses in verse 8. That is, keeping commands to endure patiently involves imitating those command, the, the commanding example of Jesus in the spread of the gospel. And the Philadelphians have persevered in this, despite persecution, without fuss, and probably without reprisals as well. These Christians had remained faithful, patiently endured whatever was thrown at them. And so Jesus says, he flips it over, you have kept my command, so I will keep you. I will keep you from the testing that will come. You see that in the second half of verse 10. You see, as an exercise of justice... Jesus promises his faithful followers protection in future troubles. And literally it says, Jesus will keep you, the tense is kind of, it's right through, now but always will be, right through the trial that is to come. Now the trial to come, all sorts of arguments about what that is. Some people will say it was a suffering experience in Asia Minor, but there's very little evidence for that. Most think, given the context of this passage, Looking heavenward, the hour of trial is a period of tribulation, suffering, strife, preceding judgment, or it's actual judgment itself. And I don't want to get into the ins and outs of that. That's not the major of this passage. But I assume that given that this is a test for those who live on earth, at the end of verse 10, it's most likely describing some form of strife for those who don't know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, So that they, before he returns in judgment, might have an opportunity, a gracious opportunity to turn to God before he returns, finally. Uh, Speculation. But the main thing is that Christians are kept from this testing. And most gloriously of all, Christians are kept from the penalty of judgment itself. Because Christ has taken all that judgment for us on the cross, in our place. Oh, we may be ridiculed now. If we are, we are to endure patiently and wait for Christ to return, to gather us up, to be with him for eternity. Patient endurance, then, firstly, I suppose, um, in the context of, of judgment, but also active, competent holding on. We see that in verse 11. Follow with me if you can. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I am coming soon. Hold on, he says. Once again, it's a a stark reminder for us all. And it brings great perspective on our very short-sighted lives, doesn't it? It brings hope to those who are suffering in patient endurance. I am coming soon. Jesus says. That present tense, it provides us in, it, it, it gives us a reality, a vivid reality that all Christians should remind themselves of this every day. I'm coming soon. My father always tells the story of, um, we grew up in Devon and Exeter, and we a very good family friend was this hulk of a Devonian farmer um, who we knew and uh, we grew up with. And he uh, was a wonderful man, a great godly man, whose son... Uh, sadly wasn't a Christian until many, many years, uh, until this, ma- this hulk of a man was nearly, di- nearly died actually. But he would kneel down in front of his window looking out to his farm every morning and he'd pray for his son, uh, firstly. And he always used to remind us, um, he, was, he was my Sunday school uh, leader from my very young years, and he always used to remind us that he prayed every morning, God, is it today? Is it today? And that reminder is a healthy prompt for us all. For if Christ comes today, are you ready? The appeal from Jesus is to aid our readiness, if you like. And he calls us to hold on, to be ready. You see, if you've got something good, whether it's a trivial, technical, Lego, or whatever it may be, you hold on to it, don't you? Holding on is, um, in that tense, it's a present imperative, which, which gives it a sense of being unavoidable. If you're a Christian, you've got to hold on. Now, of course, God is sovereign. Jesus has opened the door to all who put their trust in him. But in that sovereignty, that paradoxically, slightly, there, there lies a responsibility for all of us who are Christians that we have to hold on. Now, no one, of course, can steal our place in heaven, but we see from biblical examples such as Esau and so on, that we can forfeit our place. We're responsible under God's sovereignty for holding on, and our faithful witness and patient endurance are safeguards to that holding on. I suppose, like the soldiers on the Normandy landing beaches, they were always on the offensive. To be passive is just, it results in loss and death in those situations. So our holding on is that active fight that all of us have as Christians against our sinful natures. Those temptations that we have to rebel against God and and to buckle under persecution or whatever it may be. But it is also a great assurance. We're always looking, aren't we, for tangible examples, visible assurances that we are Christians and that God is at work in us and uh, amongst us. But our temptation, isn't it, is always to look Outside to the, the extraordinary, to the supernatural, but God has graciously provided in in us and in our responsibility before Him the assurance that He is very much at work. When we look at our struggle to hold on to Christ, as as we look at our battles with sin, as we examine our failures and successes in witnessing to our friend, we see God at work. As we become more Christ-like, we see God at work in us. The transformation that is our lives is that tangible reminder that God is sovereignly working to bring us through that open door that Jesus has provided toward heaven. And if we have no visible or tangible signs of our faith, of God at work in us, then we can have very little assurances that the door is open for us. So he says here, hold on to what you have in Christ. Why? The end of verse 11. So that no one will take your crown. Crown, garland, wreath, one of those things. It's an image of victory, of a victory that's eternity with God, a battle won on this earth. And this is not conditional because God is sovereign. And if you're a Christian, then you are facing that open door to heaven and there is a victory crown waiting for you. Sadly, however, there will be some who maybe think they're Christians but who do not hold on. I can sadly think of some of my friends from youth club days and university days who who just did not hold on. They fit into this kind of category. They had no assurance of their struggle and of their fight to cling on to Christ They remained passive observers of Jesus Christ. Yes, they would say, oh, I'm a Christian and all that kind of stuff. But when things got tough, when struggles came their way, when their support networks dwindled, or where something more attractive came along, usually blonde for most of my friends, they let go. They stopped clinging on. And if you are a Christian, then be assured, you will hold on. It is unavoidable. Whatever life throws at you, if you are truly a Christian, then enjoy the fight and do not let anyone or anything take that victor's crown from you because Christ will be here soon. So cling on, hold on. And Christ, because he is sovereign, will take you home. His final assuring promise to the Christians is this, and it's very quickly He says, I will make you mine. In verse 12, I will make you mine. The one who overcomes this life of struggling against sin and the joy of this life um, as a Christian. The one who remains faithful to death will be rewarded beyond their wildest dreams. For Jesus says in verse 12, to him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. My God is repeated so often. I will make you a pillar in the temple. Now, we know what the temple is. It's the place where God dwells most significantly um, in the Old Testament. And if you overcome the new temple in in the heavens, you will be made permanently, a permanent residence in the very presence of God. The pillar, the image of the pillar, is the image of the immovable, permanent object in that temple. And that is you if you overcome, if you hold on. Secondly, he said, I'll write on him the name of my God. My God again. I don't know if you ever get the opportunity to buy a Bentley car. I hope none of you ever buy a Bentley car, because that's a big waste of money. But if you ever did, uh, if you bought a Bentley car brand new, you have the privilege of getting a little golden plaque. A friend of mine has one of these. And um, you get a little golden plaque, and your name is engraved on it, and you can put it on the little sill down here or on the dashboard if you're really ostentatious. But you know, and, and there you go, your name is on that car forever. It belongs to you, it belongs to you. And likewise, Jesus symbolically writes on the head of the one who overcomes, who remains faithful to death, the name of God. For we belong to him. We're his possession for his praise and glory. Thirdly Jesus says to him who overcomes I will write on him and it's a name now the city of my God recognize my God there again the new Jerusalem which is coming from my God. So we belong to God, we're his possession, but also we belong with God. The city is symbolically written on our heads for it's the place of our destination. It's like a kind of an airmail stamp kind of like signifies the destination of that object that you're sending. So too, as Christians, we have been separated from our present place here on earth. uh, Because we belong elsewhere. We are citizens of heaven, Paul reminds us in uh, Philippians. We belong with God. So we belong to God, we belong with God. And lastly, we see, to the one who overcomes, we will be given a new name to recognise our new status with God, our new state with God. You see that? I will write on him my new name. Here comes an interesting parallel with the, the city of Philadelphia. In their very short history, they'd um, been given two new names from their original name. Um, and the, the, the names represented a newness of life. Two earthquakes had completely decimated the city in history. And um, then the city was rebuilt and given its new name. This symbolic new name we get as Christians is to recognise that something new has happened that we have essentially been rebuilt with Christ as the cornerstone see when we put our trust in Jesus there is a newness to our life lastly to finish he who has an ear let him hear verse 13 let me summarize if if we are Christians then remember what we have been given I just want to think, notice all the statements representing Jesus being in control in this passage. Verse 8, look at them, I know, I have, I know. Verse 9, I will, I will, I have. Verse 10 and 11, I will, I am. Verse 12, you get I will coming three times. You cannot get through this passage without realising that Jesus has done everything and is everything for any of us to get to glory, to get to heaven, to be with him. The door is open and no one, nothing can shut it. But within that sovereign will and the strength of Jesus, he graciously allows us to be active and responsible. We all have the privilege of holding on to him. We're not mere bystanders. We've been consciously given this responsibility to persevere, to fight against our sinful natures, to proclaim the goodness of Christ to those without him. And if we hold on, what do we get? Victor's crown and names plastered all over us, all of which are good. We get to be in the very presence of God for eternity. We belong to him and we belong with him. And we get a new name to show that we are the ones who have held on We might get there with very sore fingernails because we cling on you know, just with grim life. But we might get there with just utter joy in our hearts. So I guess we need to remember this week when things are hard. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold on. Hold on to the faith you have. Because why? If you've got something good, that is you've got the privilege of saying God is, as in verse 12, My God, then I think you'd be a fool not to hold on to that. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words of encouragement, of praise as well if they are true for us, individually or corporately, may we hear them and be encouraged. But if there are warnings that some of us need to hear, that we are not those who are holding on, that we are not those who know the Lord uh, Jesus as Saviour, then please help us now to consider him afresh. Help us to ask questions to have the humility to do that, so that we might be those who receive that victor's crown with great joy. Amen.